It is a joyous opportunity this afternoon, isn't it, to come together in the way that we are, and what a marvelous and wonderful thing we witnessed a few moments ago as Connor was baptized into Christ. What a refreshing, what an encouraging moment. It, of course, is a matter of all eternity for him, and yet you and I were able to witness that event. Surely, as we come to give thought to an Old Testament timeline, in many ways, this is a sequel to a lesson that did all oh, about six weeks ago, where on that occasion we looked at a timeline of the New Testament. And I thought we'd step back tonight, revisit the Old Testament, and this one, as best I could do, is going to be a two-part one. So next Sunday night, we'll look forward to completing it. But I hope over the next few moments that you and I can piece together in a historical fashion the characteristic chronological timeline that would befit the nature of the Old Testament. It is true, isn't it, that the Old Testament is an amazingly rich document. Isn't it true that Paul said that that old law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. And therefore, a knowledge of the Old Testament can be helpful in Romans 15.4. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And you notice that Paul asserted those things written aforetime, that was the Old Testament. It's there for us to learn. We understand we don't live beneath that covenant, but nonetheless, it serves as a backdrop. It serves as a foundational springboard for much of what you and I study and read within the pages of the New Testament. The lesson text you may have noted tonight was 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. And at that time it says, Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now in that instance, Paul makes reference to a host of events that he says happened to those people way back then. But they were written for our examples. Therefore we can learn from their mistakes. We can utilize the features and attributes of what happened to them and use it in a positive way for you and me. And therefore, a timeline of the Old Testament, it seems to me, can be very helpful. You'll notice on this slide, one of the dangers that it does seem is certainly a matter to be noted. The Old Testament in particular was written so long ago in most cases. For that reason, culturally, it seems extremely distant to us. It seems very abstract. After all, it was written in a much different part of the world to a people whose culture is very different than us. And maybe as we read some of those things, we can somewhat, in the reality of that distance, fail to appreciate the actual historical feature of it. And that, after all, is what can be so meaningful to you and me. For those reasons, some of these comments follow. Those Old Testament events, just like the New Testament ones, there really were people living then, and these things really did happen to them. And God's Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve it. It is therefore a timeless message, a timeless set of lessons. And so tonight, what about at least a brief timeline that can help us as we think about this Old Testament arrangement? Let me begin by saying some of the dates, especially those near the beginning of the Old Testament, there's at least some degree of uncertainty about them. Let me simply say, take them as approximate, but certainly we're close as we assert some of the dates characteristic of what you and I are about to study. Here's a picture 
on one little timeline is collapsed the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, I know much of the writing on that slide is much too small, perhaps, to read with, with detail from where you're sitting. But you'll notice it begins, and I'm going to use a little pointer to help us out. Here's the creation, which, of course, begins the Old Testament. But you'll notice immediately we come to the flood. And, of course, that's the flood of Noah's day. And what a significant worldwide event that was. Next is the Tower of Babel. There was the confusion of languages and the spreading of the nations in Genesis 11. Beyond that, you'll notice some other dates that bring us to the time of Abraham. And then you'll notice Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Now those names are very familiar to us. They're the grand patriarchs, if you please, of the Old Testament. But beyond that, you notice we soon come to the Egyptian captivity when the people of God were in Egypt for so long. There was that notable exodus when God brought those plagues on them and out those people came. Now one by one, as you think about the quickness that I'm making mention of some of these, in a moment we're going to cast a bit more spotlight and take it a bit more slowly but I just wanted you to think about this full nature of this quick timeline. Next is the period of the judges. The temple has started, the days, if you please, of David and Solomon and others. And then we rather rapidly come near the end of the Old Testament. Now, I've said all that to say that that was someone's rather quick presentation. I wanted us to do a little bit better job than that. But those details are where we're now headed. Let me try to do it like this. You and I are familiar with phrases like A.D. and B.C. Now, for instance, you and I know that when we see some number like 2018 A.D., that A.D. means Anno Domini, and literally it has to do with in the year of the Lord. But now those dates in the Old Testament quite often are written in other ways, such as B.C., which means before Christ. But I'm going to use yet a different way. Maybe you're familiar with A.M. When that refers to a date, that means Anno Mundi. And again, in Latin, that means in the year of the world. So you might on occasion see references to Old Testament dates written with the A.M. description, and that's what I'm going to do for a little while tonight. So as you and I come to the year one and the year of the world, that's when God began the creation. You and I remember in six majestic days He brought about not only the universe and the orderliness with which the earth itself was presented, but of course He brought about life on this planet. And as he did so, there was that life in the oceans and that life in the air and, of course, life on the land. And his culminating act, of course, was the creation of that being that was, in some senses, like himself. Let us make man in our image, he declared in Genesis 1.26. And therefore, he created Adam. And shortly after that, on the same day, he fashioned a woman. He called her Eve. Maybe it is in fairness you and I can notice. At that point, we quickly observe a Garden of Eden. And in that blessed garden, we remember that Adam and Eve had all the things necessary for their enjoyment of life in fellowship with God. However, the tempter came before them, and ultimately his wife sinned, and finally a little bit later, Adam did too. 
And you and I remember that due to that sin, they were thrust out of the garden. No longer having access to the tree of life, they themselves now were subject to the reality of death physically. Although they did live many years, they both did die eventually. At that point, you and I begin to notice through their descendants, then we appreciate the line of one called Seth. Now, Adam and Eve had two initial children. There was Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel, of course. And we remember that the bloodline that would ultimately lead to the Christ didn't come through Cain. It came through another son, the son called Seth. In fact, as you and I look at the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, it's traced right back through Seth all the way to Adam. Perhaps there you'll notice the next thing we appreciated earlier was, of course, that Tower of Babel. It mentioned in Genesis chapter 11 and there. The features that you and I might notice about this flood, we ought to at least give some thought to that next. The flood occurred in year 1,656. So this world was a little over 1,650 years old when the flood waters came. It only took that 1,656 years for the human family to wallow in sin and iniquity to where the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. Again, that gives you an impression, doesn't it? 1,600 years and a little bit more, and the, flood waters come, and the flood waters came. Now, that, of course, was in the days of Noah, and so Noah lived, of course, at about that time. As you give thought to the characteristics of Noah and the characteristics of that flood, many times later in the Old Testament, and even in the New, reference is made back to that flood. Jesus referred to it in Matthew 24, as a clear-cut case of the suddenness with which the judgment of God can come. Didn't Jesus say they married and gave in marriage, and yet there did come a moment when those floodwaters erupted and came, and there was no longer access to salvation on the ark. The door had been closed. Surely, as you and I add some of those matters together, it brings us then to notice that of those children of, of Noah... There was Shem and Ham and Japheth. And now, you note the line of Shem will ultimately culminate in the appearance of one called Abram. Now, you and I more often know him better as Abraham. And oh, what a towering Bible figure he was. Abraham is the father of the faithful. He was called the friend of God. He was one who himself not only was given to faithfulness, but even when commanded by God to offer his son Isaac, he did not hesitate in the reality in Genesis 22 of doing that very thing. You'll notice in the year 2084 a.m., so if you like to stuff away in your memory bank, the world was about 2,000 years old when Abraham lived. That's kind of an interesting number to keep in mind. So in the year 2084 a.m., God called Abram. Abram, leave these people where you're now living. And he at that time lived in Ur of the Chaldees, that land you and I later would know as Babylon. And God told him to leave and go to a land I'll show you. He didn't even know where he was sojourning, but yet by faith he went. And Hebrews chapter 11 details the nature of that faith and the fact he did in fact journey to a place that ultimately his descendants would not only own, but they would inhabit. 
you may notice we now come to realize some children of Abraham. First is Ishmael. This was his oldest son, born in the year 2095 a.m. Now, you and I remember that God had made a promise in Genesis 12 that in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. But at that time, Abraham and his wife had no children. That greatly bothered and agitated them because obviously they understood by the plainness of God's statement that there was to be an heir. There was to be a child. And so Sarah concocted this scheme. I've got a handmaid named Hagar. Abram, you go into her and you have a child by her and maybe that'll be the son of promise. And Abraham in weakness did it. And sure enough, a boy was born. His name was Ishmael. And what a troubling scene the world has known basically ever since. The Arab peoples, the Palestinian peoples descended through them. And they have always been a thorn in the side of the Israelites and others. And didn't God tell those individuals on that occasion that this son that is born Ishmael, he'll be a wild man. His hand will be against every man and every man's hand will be against him. They just can't get along with anybody. May I submit to you it's been that way ever since and it'll be that way until the end of time because that's what God declared. But in terms of the historical attributes, notice God had to quickly remind Abram, that's not the son of promise. I said it would be through Sarah. And so in the year 2109 a.m., Following that promise, indeed, the son of promise known as Isaac was born. Note again, a little over 2,100 years after the creation. At that point, we come to the next generation. In 2169 a.m., there was the birth of those twin sons, Esau and Jacob. As we step through those Old Testament Genesis records, let's look at a picture or two. So far, we have described in a geographic place, places like Ur of the Chaldees and that land of Palestine. The Fertile Crescent, at least in our history classes, we are often reminded by our teachers that the cradle of civilization is in that part of the world. And so enough, and so indeed it is. You may notice in particular, if I could point out a few things, this body of water is the Mediterranean Sea. This little body of water here is just a basic gulf beside the country of Saudi Arabia. But you'll notice this darkened area here. These rivers are the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The Garden of Eden likely was right there somewhere. Because remember, Genesis chapter 3 said that the Tigris and the Euphrates both ran through the Garden of Eden. So likely, the Garden of Eden was right in this area somewhere. Now, oddly enough, that part of the world today is certainly no garden. The modern-day countries of Iraq and Iran are right there. It's the place where the the Ayatollah Khomeini and the place where Saddam Hussein reigned again before, before we put him to death. That's that part of the world, and today it looks like a desert, doesn't it? Doesn't it remind you of the curse that God brought on that area? In Genesis chapter 11, maybe it is in fairness. Let's go to our next slide. And let's continue our journey. In the year 2246, 
We now notice that Jacob, remember, left and headed toward that area of Paden Aram where there he married. And his first love was Rachel, but his father-in-law ultimately gave him Leah first. And he ultimately worked 14 years for those two girls. Of course, he had a number of children while there. And you and I now appreciate that ultimately there'd be 12 boys and one girl. Now later, of course, those boys are going to be the heads of the tribes of Israel. You and I notice in the year 2277 AM, Joseph, the oldest of the, of the sons that, that, of course, Rachel bore him, the brothers hated him so they sold him into slavery, hopeful they'd never see him again. Notice again, the year 2277. When we come to the year 2299, by this point, a terrible famine had come upon that area of Palestine and Jacob and his sons moved into that area of Egypt wherein they could have appreciate the protection and the provision of Joseph. By that time, he had risen to be second in command of the Pharaoh. In the year 2365, Joseph died. And in the year 2434 a little baby boy named Moses was born. Notice, we are almost 2,500 years from the time of the creation, and yet this little boy who ultimately would be a tremendous figure in the actual saving of the children of Israel. In the year 2514 a.m., the time in Egypt had run its course. God brought the plagues, and God led His people out of Egypt using Moses as the principal figure, the one, in fact, giving those instructions to Pharaoh, let my people go, God said. You'll notice, we arrive at 2516 a.m. God's people had left Egypt and they wandered for two years. And they came to the southern border of the promised land. God was going to usher them into that promised land then, but there was a problem they, of course, had sent out 12 spies. Ten of them came back and said, Although it is a land flowing with milk and honey, and although it is a wonderfully fertile land, we can't take it. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. God said, Because of your unbelief, you're going to wander 38 more years in this wilderness until your carcasses are strewn across the wilderness of sin. You don't deserve to enter that promised land, and they didn't. Out of 603,550 fighting men that left Egypt, only two of them entered Canaan. Only two, Joshua and Caleb. As you and I come near the bottom of that slide, you notice in the year 2514 through 2554, there was a period of wandering in the wilderness, and those events are chronicled in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so when you and I read those Old Testament books, keep in mind they took place about 2,500 years after the creation. Interestingly enough, as you think about those dates and the characteristic features of them, in the year 2554 a.m., that great leader Moses died. And you'll notice that Joshua becomes the new leader he had been handpicked by God and he had been prepared for that task and that chore and oh how well he did it. That obviously brings you and me to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Now as we look at the next slide, you might appreciate another picture. 
since much of the setting of that previous slide centered around Egypt, I thought I would point that out to you. Here's the Nile River. Victoria Falls is the place where the Nile begins way back here, and that river runs a great distance all the way, of course, to the Delta region in the Mediterranean Sea. That river is the lifeblood in many ways of the land of Egypt. They need the water for sustenance. It'd be a desert without it. At this point, might we notice the following? Here's another picture. Since we did make mention of the children of Israel leaving Egypt and heading toward the promised land, I thought we might note the following. As they left, they crossed, first of all, the Red Sea after but a very few days. The children of Israel, of course, at that point were in a very difficult spot because the Egyptians were pursuing them. That's the occasion when, remember, God told Moses, hold out the rod, and he did, and the waters parted, and they crossed on dry ground. But they continued their journey, and ultimately they traveled all the way to the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And there, a mountain called Mount Sinai is there, and God appeared on that mountain and gave the ten laws that you and I call those Old Testament ten commandments. But not only that, He gave a whole host of additional laws he said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people if you'll keep my commandments. And he gave them powerful promises and wonderful considerations of what they would be if they would just be true to his word. You'll notice they eventually, after some amount of time, left Mount Sinai and ultimately journeyed to, of course, that ultimate land of Canaan. They finally, of course, would enter it from the east Moses died on that occasion, and again, as Joshua led them across, it brings us to another slide. To this point so far, I have listed all the dates as A.M., Anno Mundi, in the year of the world. I thought maybe now would be a good time to switch over the manner in which those dates are listed. Let's now switch to B.C., before Christ. And so, as we now come to the year 1500 B.C., that corresponds to 2554 A.M. So, in other words, in the year 2554, in the year of the world, that corresponds to 1500 B.C. Now, as you add those two things together, it brings us to continue our journey. So, in other words, Joshua led the children of Israel into that promised land, and they conquered it and divided it in about the year 1450 B.C. As you contemplate the nature of that date, that immediately gives you an impression of when some of those books of the Old Testament were written. Moses wrote the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy around 1500 B.C., not long before he died. When you and I note the following, that next brings us to Joshua. And so, in those 24 chapters of Joshua, we now have an impression, again, of the conquest of that land and the division of it. And that, again, took place at around 1435 B.C. Next on the list is this. In 1431 B.C., Joshua died. And you might appreciate that that record is given to us in Joshua 24. And next, in the Old Testament, we immediately encounter the time of the Judges appeared extending 350 years, and during that time, 15 judges 
are the judges that God through Israel utilized to offer them protection from oppression. You may notice that that period of the judges was from 1420 to 1064 B.C. The first judge was Othniel, the last one was Samuel. I might select out of those, some of them are lesser known than others admittedly, but the life and times of Samuel bring us to about 1180 B.C. Samuel, of course, was so well known as a faithful servant in many ways to God, but sadly enough, his sons weren't nearly as faithful as he was. Therefore, you may notice that the people asked for a king. Give us a king, they declared, that we may be like the nations round about us, to borrow the language of 1 Samuel chapters 8 and 20. As the people made that decree, the first king of Israel was a man named Saul. He began his reign with such promise, a man who was devoted to the truth of God. But it didn't take long for his ego to get in the way. He began to think more of himself than he did of the command of God. And he began to be presumptuous, to ignore God's commandments and do things that he wanted to do the way he wanted to do them. And therefore, you and I remember, God wouldn't have any of that. So God removed him as king And ultimately, God told him, I'm going to now bring in one better than you, and you and I know him as David. David was the second king of Israel. He reigned from 1020 to 980 B.C. So here's another time when you might etch away in your memory banks another interesting phrase. Remember, Abraham lived 2000 B.C. David lived 1000 B.C. It was a thousand years from Abraham to David. Now, you and I think about a thousand years sounding like a long time, and yet that history of the Bible was critical. As you and I close this slide, here's another picture. We mentioned those 12 tribes of Israel, and so here is a picture of that land in the rough division of where those tribes ultimately settled in that land of promise. The next slide will also list some more details. Here, again, is another statement about the map on the left is one about the territorial empire of David, and the one on the right is the territorial empire of Solomon. You begin to see that God's people owned quite a bit of land. God gave it to them. He made it available to them and promised it as a result of their faithfulness to Him. Let's continue our journey onward. I mentioned David a moment ago at 1000 B.C. Notice, interestingly enough, Saul and David and Solomon, all three of them, they reigned 40 years apiece. After David, we come to Solomon. Now you'll notice that Solomon wrote several of the books of the Old Testament, particularly Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. But let me add a few more things to it. In the year 977 to 969... Solomon made the decree that there would be completed that amazing temple. Now, David had had in mind a thought to do that, but God didn't permit David to construct it because he was a man of blood. He had shed a great deal of blood, but God did promise David his son, namely Solomon, would construct it, and that he did. As you can see, it took him eight years to build it. It was, by any stretch of the imagination, a fantastic structure. 
You and I remember he used the finest wood, the finest metal, the finest gold, and he overlaid as much of it as possible with pure gold. It's perhaps startling to the eye to imagine how that would have glistened in, in the sunlight. No wonder enemy nations, when they come to see the amount of gold there, they had an eye toward the money. And ultimately, in the days of Hezekiah, he made a grave error by showing all the riches to the enemy nation of Assyria. And the prophet Isaiah told him, you shouldn't have done that. Because I'm telling you, they're going to come and take it. And they did. And so as you and I come to this point, in 940 B.C., the kingdom was divided because Solomon's son was a fool. He didn't remain true to God, but he taxed the people so that they rebelled against him. And the kingdom was split. There was the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And you notice that Israel's duration was from 940 until 722. And sure enough, just like God had told through the prophet, Assyria came and took the northern kingdom off into captivity. 722 B.C., off they went. At this point, we notice we're still left with the southern kingdom of Judah, and they lasted a bit longer, all the way until 586 B.C. This time, they too, due to their wickedness, due to their ungodliness, due to their evil, God also would cast them away, but not to Assyria, but rather to Babylon. And so it was that in 606 B.C., the mighty war machine known as Babylon came against them. At this point, all that the Babylonians did was took some of the people away captive, but they let the king and some others stay. Those people, though in time, rebelled again. And so in 597, Nebuchadnezzar came back. And one more time, he didn't completely destroy it. He did carry some more people away captive, and he did, in fact make some additional demands. But one more time, after a few years, the people became rather haughty, and they rebelled again. And in 586 B.C., this time, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. He came back and absolutely destroyed the city. He burned the temple, 2 Kings 25.9. He took away everybody that could be in any way suitable to the kingdom of Babylon. And at this point, the historical section of the Old Testament for all practical purposes closes. As you give thought to that, let's look at a picture. One artist's rendition of that amazing temple that Solomon built. You note the laver that sits out front, that laver that had the water in it. You notice the incredible pillars and the statutes that in fact were utilized. Inside was the holy place as well as the most holy place. Here's another picture of that southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's yet another picture of that part of the world where all of these events and settings have taken place. That fertile crescent that I mentioned earlier. Notice that the Median Empire, the Chaldeans, located here, that's Babylonia. Here again, that Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem is right there. Now, as you've thought about all of that, that historical timeline of the Old Testament, we started with the year 1 a.m. and ended, at least so far, at 586 B.C. 
as you put together the features of those things, remember we have really transpired through what amounts to around 3,500 years of time. Amazingly enough, as you think about all of that, it brings me to a moment of conclusion. Remember, part two of this lesson will take up at this point next Sunday night. And our goal will be to cast a spotlight on those events, really, that touch the prophets of the Old Testament. Because I have really said almost nothing about them. So come ready to study the prophets with me next Sunday evening as we try to historically put them in place. At this point, the historical nature of the Old Testament we've tried to highlight. As we've done that, we've been encouraged, I think, to think about the nature of how God acted through time, acted really so far through 3,500 years of history. He, of course, brought about this marvelous book that you and I hold in our hand. The Old Testament does consist of 39 books. It consists of 929 chapters. And all of those chapters are inspired of God. And tonight we have in fact spanned a large number of them. But I hope that it's been helpful. One last thought on that slide. How often will it be that the New Testament writers will reflect back on this Old Testament and say, this was what the prophet declared. Jesus in Luke 24, 44, in fact, referred back to this and said, all that's written in the law and the writings and the prophets concerning me has been fulfilled. The law is those first five books of the Old Testament. The writings are those extra books like Kings and Chronicles and Samuel. Jesus said, those books spoke of me, and they've all been fulfilled. And so it's helpful to you and me to know a bit about this timeline so that as we read the Old and New Testament, we can place it in its proper place and use it in the way that God would have us to use it. I hope tonight that the lesson has been helpful, encouraging to each of us. We'll complete the Old Testament next Sunday night by casting a spotlight on the prophets again of the Old Testament. It would be appropriate to use this moment to offer what we call a word of invitation. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Tonight, perhaps you are languishing beneath the burden of sin. You realize I nor any other human being can take that sin away from you, but Jesus can. When He died at the cross, shedding His sinless blood, He, in fact, at that moment allowed the following statement to be made. For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus' blood is the only detergent that can wash your sins away. And the only way to contact it as an alien sinner is in baptism. You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and then be immersed in water. We call it baptism for the remission of sin. If you have done that, and you perhaps have known for a while the faithfulness and the strength and the fidelity of the life in Christ, but maybe that's a distant memory. You have begun to live in a disgraceful way. Others, perhaps in your family and friends and neighbors, they sense that the way that you live is not consistent with what you claim. If that's true, you're in eternal jeopardy. 
Why not come back to your first love and live 100% for the one who died for you? There is no half-hearted service to Jesus. He said you're either for me or you're against me. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 30. Tonight, if you're not for him, why don't you in fact allow us to assist in the rededication of your life? It's not that the power's in us. As long as you'll repent of those sins and confess them, our prayer to God, He's promised to forgive you. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If tonight we could be of help to anyone in either of these ways, we would encourage you to come at once while together we stand and while we sing.